In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You've heard of this hope before in the word of truth, the gospel that's come to you just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. There were two major ways to get to ancient Colossae. One could begin at Ephesus, a very important city in New Testament times. One could go up the river from Ephesus. What a wonderful name for a river, the Meander, it's called. You could follow that river for a hundred miles and find that another river flowed into it at that point called the Lycus. And if you went south on the Lycus River 40 more miles, you would come to Colossae. Or you could go by a major road. There was a great road far the north called the Via Ignatia the Romans had built, but this was a good road all the way from Ephesus, coming to Colossae, going straight on across to Antioch, where believers were first called Christians, according to Acts, all the way to the fertile Tigris-Euphrates River Valleys, modern-day Iraq. The person who founded the church at Colossae was named Epaphras, and after the founding of that church, a letter was written back to them, and this letter will be the focus of our preaching for these four weeks. Let's take a look at today's text. We find here the familiar words that we have in other books in the New Testament, faith and hope and love. But where Paul ends the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians by saying, the greatest of all the gifts is love, this author says, your faith and your love have come into your life because of your hope. If you read very carefully, that's what he says, because of your hope, you came to have faith and love. So he puts a hope right there as the basis for everything. You remember a few years ago when Dr. John Claypool came to do our Barton Clinton Gordy series? He came to us from St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Claypool was wonderful. His very first presentation, he stood up and looked at you and me and said, you've heard it said all of your life, where there is life, there is hope. But I'm convinced that where there is hope, there is meaningful life. Where there is hope, there is meaningful life. And he poured out his own life to you and me. He told us about his daughter, their only beloved daughter who was diagnosed with leukemia when she was in elementary school. How they took her every place they knew to took her, take her, where thousands of people were praying for her, and she lived less than two years after she was diagnosed. Every one of his four messages was born out of that belief that where there is hope, there is life. Back in February, Theater Tulsa presented Educating Rita as one of their offerings this year. Gail and I had seen Educating Rita before. Perhaps you saw the movie back in the early 80s, starring Michael Caine and Julie Walters. There are only two major characters in the play. One is a young hairdresser. She's 26 years old, lives in London. She is seen on the telly 
that they have an open university now, that you don't have to have all kinds of prerequisites to get into the open university. You just have to have a desire to learn, show up and pay your money, sign up for a course. The British system is different from ours. We normally have a large group of students in a classroom, maybe only a dozen, but more likely 20, 25, 30 taught by a teacher. In the British system, university uh, level, uh, usually it's a student and a professor one-on-one. -on -one. Students given a reading list and told to go away and read and then come back and converse with the professor. Then another reading list, go away, read, then come back. And so in these encounters between Rita and the professor, we come to know a lot about both of them. The whole play is just about the two of them. The professor is bored to death. He's tired of the hypocrisy of the academic system. Uh, he has a good bottle of scotch hidden behind a couple of the books in his uh, library. So whenever he gets really bored, he can take down Keats or Shelley and have a good drink all at the same time. He's um, half anesthetized a good part of his life. And then suddenly Rita comes bursting into his office. Rita, 26 years old, a hairdresser. She's married, has no children. Her husband is pressing her to have a child. It's time to start our family. It's time to have a baby. But she's not convinced that it's the right time, she said. Life seems to be so much the same all the time. Every day he goes to work. Every day I go to work. And every evening he wants to go to the pub. He meets all his mates there, and they drink and drink, and they sing. Mostly, she said, they talk about the war, meaning World War II. This play was written back in the early 1980s. They talk about the war back when life had meaning, she said. My husband thinks having a choice in life means going to a pub where they have at least eight different loggers from which you can choose. But in fact, she said, we have no choices. We do the same thing every day and the same thing every night. One night, Rita's there in the pub, and her family are getting soused again, and they're singing louder and louder as they get drunker and drunker, and Rita turns to her mother and says, you know, we could be singing better songs. Better songs. As she discovers this world of books, she discovers choices. She's a hairdresser, so... She changes her hairstyle. Every time a scene changes almost, she's fixed herself up a little bit differently. And finally, the professor says to her one evening, Rita, you got to understand that the change you're looking for is not going to be a change in the way you do your hair, or even the fact that you can go and buy a new dress, or even if you sing a different song. Deep change comes from inside. And it's really, really difficult. But if there's hope, if there's hope, hope that things don't have to be the way they've always been, hope that things could be different in your life, in our life together, that's the, that's the undergirding message from this author writing to the church at Colossae. Because of your hope, he says, we go to number two, and that's faith. When you fully comprehended, he said, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You had faith when you fully grasped, fully grasped, fully comprehended how marvelous God's gift 
was to you. There's a new documentary out called Herb and Dorothy. It hasn't come to Tulsa. Uh, I've read a review in the Wall Street Journal. The reviewer said, this is a documentary you might want to see. He thought it was better than most. It is about two very real people. Herb works in the post office in New York. His wife is a librarian in Brooklyn. They live in a one-bedroom apartment. Very small, very modest. They never had a child. It's just the two of them. Forty years ago, they decided they wanted to learn more about art. And so they started reading. Uh, she could always find more books, more books in the library. She would read to him, he would read to her, they would read together, and then they would go looking on the weekends. And with these two very modest incomes, they began to buy paintings, one and then another and another and another and another. And finally they decided they wanted to give their collection to the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. And they sent an art expert to take a look at their art and was absolutely amazed at what they had collected. Over a 40-year period, in this tiny one-bedroom apartment, they had enough paintings it took five moving vans to take it all to Washington, D.C. They had paintings stacked beside painting, beside painting, beside painting, beside painting. And so now people are saying, my goodness, where did they get all of those paintings? And in the documentary, they interview people who know. One said, oh, I saw them every weekend, scurrying around like little mice, looking at everything, looking at everything. And another in the documentary says, but even that is something special. Most of us look and never see, and there are so many who don't even look at all. To look and see, to see and comprehend. Epiphras has taught the people of Colossae that if they will look at an old rugged cross on a hill just outside the city of Jerusalem, they will see how far the love of Almighty God was willing to go for them. If you really look, if you really hope for something that could change your life forever, maybe you can see and fully comprehend the grace of God. Number three, this author says, and this leads you to love. He says specifically a few verses farther, we have been moved from this arena of darkness into the arena of light, from darkness into light by doing agape. Remember, this is not about physical attraction, eros. This is not even friendship, philios. This is agape, a decision of the mind. You can decide to put yourself out for the well-being of another. Friday a week ago, Gail and I went to see Wicked. This Friday we went to see our own show here. Let me tell you that Children of Eden is a wonderful show. Uh, same composer, did Wicked, did Children of Eden, did Godspell, did Pippin. Uh, we have three big performances left, Thursday night at 7, Friday night at 7, Saturday afternoon at 2.30. There's still some tickets available. You would really enjoy the show. Wicked, of course, is still here for quite a run in Tulsa as well, and uh, I think you would enjoy that show. Lots of color, lots of spectacle, uh, things going on on stage from monkeys with wings to... Uh, 
beautiful young woman uh, suspended up over the stage. Uh, lots of talented people, beautiful costumes and fire and lights and things. It's really spectacular. It's supposed to be about the Wizard of Oz and the Witches of Oz. And how did one come to be called the Good Witch and one called the Wicked Witch? Uh, what happened to them? And the play begins with the birth of a baby, a baby born out of an adulterous relationship, and the baby is born green. Her whole life, she's green. The father sees no reason why she should be green if he's the father, so he knows he's not the father. And so she's ostracized right from the beginning. In time, a sister comes along who's confined to a wheelchair. That's another whole part of the story. There's a beautiful young blonde one who will be called later the Good Witch of Oz. Christy uh, Chinowith uh, created that role on Broadway, won Tony Award for her splendid performance there. So you have the beautiful young blonde and you have the green one. The blonde, fair one, and the green one. And both of them finally focus on the same guy and which one of them will he choose and so on. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it yet, but there's an end to the story. A song, a song that these two sing to each other at the very end. The two young women sing to each other. I have been changed for the better because I know you. I have been changed for the better because I know you. What greater thing could anyone ever say to you or to me or we say to someone else? I've been changed for the better because I knew you. Number four. This author is saying to the folks in Colossae, you don't just hang on with grim determination. You're supposed to live out this life with joy and thanksgiving. With joy and thanksgiving. I'm trying to convince my Sunday school class that no graduate of a seminary accredited by the United Methodist Church has ever written a scary commentary on John's Revelation. Those who go to the great mainline seminaries accredited by the rest of us, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Disciples, United Methodist, Roman Catholics, those great, great old seminaries, when those graduates write about John's Revelation, they write what a comforting, encouraging message John has for those who would hear his work read to them. Okay? This author also is saying joy with joy and thanksgiving. Just recently I was reading an article written by Tom Brokaw. Tom was back at Normandy on June the 6th for the anniversary, the 65th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. 65 years since June 6, 1944. Uh, you know that Tom wrote a best-selling book on the greatest generation of Americans. And since he retired from his anchor job at NBC, uh, Tom has continued to spend more and more time with that World War II generation, uh, so many of whom have already come to their death and, and more are coming to their deaths all the time now. So he was at Normandy again interviewing some of these veterans some of them in wheelchairs because they lost one or more limbs when the Normandy invasion occurred. Some of them leaning on canes just because they're nearly 90 years old now. Uh, so many of them with stories to tell. But Tom wrote in this piece, have you seen a picture 
of those young men when they were first inducted into the military service in World War II? Today, he said, recruiters often have to say to young men and women, you'll have to go home and lose 20 pounds before you can apply to join the armed forces. You're going to have to go home and lose 30 pounds before you can apply to join the armed forces. Well, none of these young men had that problem, he said. Take a look at them. They had all come through the Great Depression. And they look malnourished, he said. They are so thin, just so thin. Some of you remember the Great Depression. I've told you that my mother and father talked about those first couple of years when they were married and before I was born. My dad was making 50 cents a day. When I was born, he was still making 50 cents a day and glad to have a job. Today we talk about 9.5% unemployment, and that's terrible. But in the Great Depression, there were communities that had 40 and 50% unemployment rates in this country and people who didn't have 50 cents a day to live on. Tom Brokaw says the greatest generation came out of that Great Depression. He said, when you interview these young men and ask them, how tough was it to get ready for that invasion? One of them said, well, not as tough as loading hay into a barn when it's 105 degrees. And one of them said, you know, when I was inducted, I got the first pair of new shoes I'd ever had in my life. And another one said, Mr. Brokaw, you wouldn't remember... You'll, you wouldn't believe all the food. The first morning, he said, we got up and went into the, into the mess hall and they had bacon and eggs and ham and sausage and pancakes and all the orange juice and coffee you could drink. It was wonderful. And Tom Brokaw, Tom Brokaw says, one of the reasons the great generation was so great is that they had known a time when they had less and were forever grateful for when they had more.